Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it is made. Hello, my name is Laura Fritsch and I'm a doctoral student at the University of Oxford. I'm here today with Dr. Horacio Larigui, Associate Professor of Government at Harvard University. Thank you very much for agreeing to chat with me today. We'll be talking about your paper, Who Debates Who Wins? At Scale Experimental Evidence on Debate Participation in a Liberian Election with Jeremy Bowles. For those who haven't read the paper yet, um, could you briefly tell us what the paper is about? Sure. We examine how candidates' election into the supply of, of policy information determines its electoral effects. A nationwide debate initiative designed to solicit and rebroadcast policy promises from Liberian legislative candidates will randomize encouragement of debate partic- participation across districts. The interventions substantially increase the debate participation of the leading candidates, uh, who expected to be mostly affected by it, but led to a very uneven um, and somewhat unexpected uh, electoral returns for these candidates, um, with incumbents actually benefiting at the expense of the challengers. And what we show is that these results are driven by difference in compliance. Essentially, what you have is that compliant incumbents, incumbents but not challengers, positively selected into debate participation based on the congruence between the policy preferences and those of the constituents, but challengers did not. And, and overall, that actually, actually ends up mm-hmm. helping them. Yeah, the paper's super interesting. Um, and how did you come to work on this topic in particular, and why Liberia specifically? So Jeremy and I have a paper together with Shelly Yu, who's another mm-hmm. graduate student yeah, in the department, uh, on turnout buying in Liberia. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeremy was doing fieldwork in Liberia for his dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, he went to talk to USAID, um, the local office, uh, to ask them about a survey mm-hmm. that I actually conducted, uh, which we wanted to access. And during this meeting, sort of like, um, they mentioned that they, they were doing this debate initiative mm-hmm. together with Internews, and then Jeremy told me about it, and I was like, we should totally try to evaluate this. So mm-hmm. he went back to USAID and asked them uh, about this, and they were like, you know, we're fine with that, and actually some, have some money around. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had to convince yeah, things interviews, uh, and Jeremy was fantastic at, mm-hmm. at doing that. So, and, and overall, you know, why, why I was interested in, 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 the, in this project, sort of, I, I have a lot of work sort of on information accountability, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, of course, I was attracted by that, but more so because, actually, I'm very interested about how to transition for, like, kind of clientelistic type uh, mm-hmm. politics to more programmatic um, and in particular sort of, I am interested about kind of the political economy of this right. is that how can you have a self-enforcing enforcing transitions mm-hmm. which in this particular context means like how can you get mm-hmm. candidates to show up to the debates mm-hmm. and provide policy promises uh, which they wouldn't normally do mm-hmm. uh, because they're specializing in buying. That's wildly serendipitous um, and you have a series of projects with um, Jeremy how did you come to work with him, and how do you generally choose your co-authors? Because that's something we always end up wondering. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Jeremy's a graduate student yeah. uh, in our department, and he's interested in political economy, which is, mm-hmm. which is what I do. And he actually worked in Africa between his undergraduate studies, actually here at Oxford, mm-hmm. and his PhD. So like sort of working together, like uh, it was a natural fit, uh, both in terms of like sort of regional interest, which in political science is a big mm-hmm. deal, and, and topics of uh, interest. Uh, but more generally, you know, like sort of the um, my, my, my co-authors are graduate students, uh, the vast majority of them. Mm-hmm. Sort of, I see collaborating with them as a great way to train them and for them to get a paper. And also, like, you know, I also get a paper out of that. And also, like, somehow, I, I think that, you know, like, that close experience can lead to, like, long-lasting friendships. Mm-hmm. And sort of, and it's not, you know, I just write one paper with them. No, I, you know, we continue to work together. And that's something that uh, I think was one of the greatest things of this profession. Of course, if you get to pick the right <laughs> people, but, you know... Um, um, I guess as faculty, you know, that, that sort of you get to 
I mean, before you start working with them, you kind of have a sense of whether something's going to work or not. And of course, you select yourself into mm -hmm. uh, potentially successful yeah. Uh, relationship. Yeah. yeah, of course. My supervisor also says that if he can't see himself doing at least three projects with a person, it's not worth the startup costs. Pro, 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 probably <laughs> not, yeah. I mean, yeah. More than, I mean I, of course, you do advise them. And, uh, of course. But, uh, you know, it's sort of, uh, it's, uh, it requires, you know... Um, Huge sort of, personal commitment. Correct, yeah. So, yeah. Um, how did the partnership um, with USAID and Internews come about? Um, and do you have any piece of advice for finding local partners to run field experiments? Okay, it's a big question. Um, <laughs> so as I mentioned, everything started with sort of an informal conversation. And I think you know, we were extremely very lucky. We were extremely very lucky. Sort of, um, first, the, the USAID office actually wanted to do, uh, you know, they were happy that, to have the intervention evaluated and they had some money like floating around, uh, which is pretty rare. And second, I think more cru crucial, sort of, um, John MacArthur, who is the, the, mm -hmm. the um, kind of president, the, the, the local director of, of Internews in Liberia, um, she was thrilled when she found out that, you know, about this possibility. Mm -hmm. She had no clue about RCTs. And kind of when we explained to her, you know, that what could be done, she was like, really? You know, and she, she really wanted mm -hmm. to know, kind of like, whether like what they thought would were actually did and sort of and which aspects of the, of, mm -hmm. of the intervention would be more successful. So I think that it was a pretty unique situation, you know, both in terms of like the USA press mm -hmm. position, uh, which um, especially from the local uh, office, which is not always uh, the case, and sort of and, and Jan sort of mm -hmm. availability, and she was like so willing to change. So essentially, she really wanted to accommodate whatever whatever would need to be changed. Uh, for us to be able to evaluate it. And actually, the interviews in the end put them, they themselves actually put resources uh, because they really wanted this to work. So, and such flexibility is like pretty rare. Um, however, the good thing is actually uh, because this project was so successful mm -hmm. and actually created a lot of noise, uh, now sort of interviews is much more willing to engage in this type of things. Mm -hmm. It actually was the first ever RCT. And right now they're even like sort of planning on like, you know, having, you know, like many more RCTs mm -hmm. and, sort of, and make it part of their kind of like the um, kind of goals in the future. So I'm working with them uh, in sort of, we're developing projects in Bolivia, DRC and Zimbabwe at the moment. Actually, I just came from the London office oh, wow. uh, before coming here. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's great to try to see how there's a bit of like a cultural mm -hmm. change. And it's going to take time, but, uh, but a lot of like people high up and, and also high up are very willing to, you know, to make that happen. Mm -hmm. But in, sort of in terms of advice, general advice um, on how to find local partners, um, first, you know, you need to be in the field. Essentially, like, you know, like, uh, many times people ask me about it, and so, and so, like, you can't just send emails uh, and just hope, you know, that people, like, gather their interest. Um, it just doesn't work that way. And, and sort of, and second, and related, sort of, you actually have to propose an evaluation is, is beneficial for the project or, or the organization as a whole. Mm -hmm. So you have to be m mindful that you know most NGOs on the ground have no knowledge of what an RCT actually is, and actually takes them some mm -hmm. time to understand what that is. And sort of and when you bring up kind of like all the elements of the of an evaluation, for them it just feels like adding more work to a really hectic implementation. So the usual selling points uh, is that you know first you have to sort of like explain that you know like by doing the evaluation you know, make sure that the implementation is going to be much more rigorous mm -hmm. and that might help uh, for it to be successful. Um, and second, which is you know, kind of like a cheap thing, but essentially like they have to understand that if they can provide kind of costal evidence that it actually works or what aspects of that works, that's going to open up uh, room for funding uh, from sort of donors who are now much more interested in sort of, um, sort of in evidence-based 
uh, sort of in, in, uh, projects. Um, and then sort of also like, you know, you have to be very clear that, and actually truthfully, uh, tell them that, you know, you, you and your team are gonna do everything that they can to kind of mitigate the burden. Uh, so they should work that the evaluation might, might actually bring and actually even go further and say, look, you know, we're gonna even make easier life when it comes to implementing the project. And because you can take care of like, sort of like assignment and so forth, which you're gonna have to do anyway because you have to randomize that. So that's kind of thing broadly like the, the, um, the, the main points. But going back to my first issue, like you can only do that if you're on the ground. Essentially this requires a lot of like uh, social interactions and a lot of explaining and yeah. So it's, I think it's a very important point like, like from sitting in your office here at Oxford, um, because yeah. you have to get people to the point where they actually want to listen exactly yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and also you have to get them to know you have to figure out kind of like mm-hmm. i mean it's uh kind of what they're interested mm-hmm. in and somehow like it's, it's very important so like and, and just you know like uh getting to see that is this is mutually beneficial mm-hmm. and uh, of course then you wonder like how on earth am i gonna end up in the field you know if i don't have a project so mm-hmm. it's like kind of the chicken and the egg type game and there actually i think it goes back to our previous point where like it's very important, I think, that uh, you know, like you start kind of working with some faculty on some other project, mm-hmm. and somehow you kind of end up in the field, and then you start sort of like figuring uh, around, like, you know, talking to people and see what they're doing, and see you know what, what what's a good fit. Yeah. And what were some advantages and challenges of conducting a national experiment on this topic of political accountability? What specific precautions did you have to take? Yeah, <laughs> I, have no, I, have, I have no more prepared. So, uh, um, so essentially, like, so there are sort of like a so a few differences relative to the standard, um, like project implementation. Imagine that you do some sort of like some agricultural stuff. I mean, the plants and the farmers are not going to push against you. Uh, however, you know, politicians, you know, like uh, they they don't really want you to mess up with what they're doing. And also, there is a broader issue of whether like should you be messing up with that, especially sort of as a foreigner, normally that we, we tend to be, to, to work in countries where you know, the, the, we're not uh, citizens. So I think that the, so essentially you should expect uh, that as default, people, the police are gonna push back mm-hmm. against sort of whatever you do. Um, unless of course they see that, you know, there's something uh, for them mm-hmm. uh, to begin with, but it's not obvious that they might uh, even if you're something you think that you're like, gonna enhance accountability and they might be benefited, mm-hmm. just because it's not part of the game and they're not used to that, um, they might actually push mm-hmm. against it. And I have a, the case of we were doing this experiment in Mexico and actually like we were providing these leaflets with ex- uh, information about the extent to which these guys were corrupt. And of course, a lot of these leaflets show that many of them kind of uh, had not engaged in corruption. Still, some of those mayors um got put in jail our enumerators even though we're actually showing that some information that ha- was going to be beneficial for them electorally but essentially mm-hmm. they just don't want you to mingle with that so essentially i think that's an important constraint you know and i have suffered from mm-hmm. any pushback you know latin in latin pro- projects in latin america uh, uh and, and africa so essentially like whenever you design something you have to anticipate that that will actually mm-hmm. happen and so and take any pre- like all precautions uh, to so you can able to mitigate yeah. that situation when it happens. So going back to the the, the, the first point is uh, that you know, have to do with like the fact that you're operating sort of in what uh, we foreign elections mm-hmm. is that you know you have to kind of work with a local partner. You have to look at, work with a local NGO that uh, that is the one essentially that you know is, is kind of like willing to implement it 
And ideally, like sometimes they're ideally they are implemented already, and you just mm -hmm. assist them with implementation. Often it's the case that they might not have the money, but you know if that budget constraint was relaxed, you know, they were willing to do it. That's the second best, but you know, like often the closest, uh, the most realistic one. Mm -hmm. um, Essentially, and, and it's, clear, it's, it's crucial that these guys have a lot of political capital. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, and when the time comes, you know, like they, they, they can actually uh, mm -hmm. use it. And also, essential for the design is that it has to be completely unbiased. You have to take every single precaution so that you know that you can sort of walk people through your mm -hmm. design and say, look, the, uh, uh, ex ante, there's absolutely no bias. So, you have to block randomize, take into account sort of like party identity and, and so forth. Essentially, you know, they have to be extremely mm -hmm. careful. So, essentially, when and not even, but essentially when this actually happens, uh, so you can walk them through what you've been doing and pretty much sort of like let the NGO point out that you know, this is part of like kind of their civic duty and they're just basically mm -hmm. exercising their, their, their civic rights. Um, so I think that, that, that all is, is pretty important. I mean, that, that said, you know, like uh, um, normally like the, the higher, you know, uh, payoff projects are the ones where you should anticipate um, the, you know, the highest pushback. Uh, but um, and your NGO should be very well informed and aware of this sort of uh, so and sort of and once you cannot get this consent and uh, then you should just, like uh, push through. But essentially, I think that that's kind of the hardest uh, part of like implementing these type of field mm -hmm. experiments at you know in, in the political context. Yeah, what was what was so interesting about this is that last night I was trying to see if there was any precedence for internews to have worked in this kind of project and I found none and kind of given the potential impact of the research that, that you were doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is, this is a complete, a completely kind of like USA slash international mm -hmm. project. So essentially we had nothing to do with the, imp the implementation. It's actually funny because, you know, when we were training to get a Harvard IRB, mm -hmm. I was asked about like, well, they were like, well, I'm not sure you know, I, I can sort of like, uh, allow you to, to conduct, to conduct this type of research activities. I'm like, I'm not sort of essentially, you know, this is like, I'm, I'm, all, all I'm doing is basically just like sort of designing the survey, you know, it's just structuring things in a little bit, mm -hmm. but this is going to happen anyway, whether we evaluate it or not, mm -hmm. which is very important also for us mm -hmm. to get sort of IRB. I think that, of course, that's kind of the very ideal world. Uh, not always feasible, but uh, yeah, so it's, um, yeah, so it's important to clarify. Great. Um, and did you experimental design over time, for instance, as a result of piloting? So... In general, like the the in the type of projects I implement are normally around elections. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's like there's no margin for um, piloting. Mm -hmm. So especially this, this particular project was basically uh, so at scale. So it's like there was like no sample where you know we could try anything, and uh, and the timing was uh, so quick that uh, there was no it was impossible for us to kind of like try to assess whether things were kind of working, quote unquote. Uh, and adjust, so no, and, and in general, my so essentially, like I have to spend a lot of time, a priority, trying to you know, uh, you know, with my collaborators, trying to figure out uh, what might go wrong and try to anticipate that. And uh, this is why also like pre-analysis plans are so important. Um, it's not not only because you know like, they're gonna tie your hands. I think you know like uh, that's a general thing that people want. But you know, but, you know, subject to the fact that you are a researcher, that you know you're honest and you're not thinking of doing pee hacking or whatever, still is a very useful process to sort of anticipate you know anything you might need to measure and and you know think hard. And, but, uh, but but normally what you do is that you know you talk a lot with the partners. Uh, you try to like conduct kind of focus groups. You try to talk to people. Uh, because there's no margin for error, so essentially you try to sort of anticipate all these things, and then at the end of the day, like, 
you know, you just, you just go with whatever you chose and you, you hope to be right. Yeah. yeah. And then with the benefit of hindsight, um, what would you have done differently? I mean... Which is admittedly a tough question. No, I mean, I mean, this is, I mean, I, I, that is, the answer to this would be a little easier for other projects. Uh, for this particular project, I think we were we were pretty lucky and and, and uh, things worked out as mostly as expected. I think that something that we have, we have wanted was to conduct um, a candidate survey before the election, but that was pretty unfeasible because they were campaigning and it's mm-hmm. kind of, I mean, we have been extremely costly to kind of like, you know find where these guys were you know, uh, so in the middle of the district and conduct a survey. Also, we didn't have the money. We only got money from j sort of after the election. Uh, but I think that it would have been nice. I mean, I would, you know, we have learned a few things that uh, I still wonder, and I'm not going to tell you. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I don't know. Like, but yeah, overall, like, I think that on this one, we did a pretty good job. Yeah. Great. Um, I'm now going to move to more general questions about um, your research agenda and your routine. So you've written a lot on political accountability and voting behavior in African Latin America. How did you end up working on these topics? So I'm, I'm originally from Argentina. Um, and, you know, if you look at our politics, sort of a lot of the political outcomes are, are explained by, you know, clientelism, vote buying, essentially like... Um, most of our elections essentially have been bought, um, and uh, and and that explains a lot of electoral outcomes, um, especially sort of uh, like on the margin. So I always, you know, wonder, you know, how we could be like kind of stuck in in that essentially, like you know, it's like this. Uh, always, everybody talks about sort of Argentina as this, you know, like uh, the exceptionalism, you know, it's a big puzzle, and uh, and 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 you know, and somehow I always thought, you know, maybe I could add a little bit. Uh, you know, by looking into into this whole clientelism question, and that's saying that we're always sort of somehow like sort of like uh, in econ, so just it's like not not a typical question that, that you you will uh, look into, and also so in Argentina it's kind of very hard to study this uh, because of course of course you have some stake on this, and sort of like and anything that might produce as research could be perceived as biased. Uh, and even used for you know the wrong reasons, uh, they're very creative uh, at turning research uh, to their advantage. So, um, but and but you know like that's some, something that was always in the back of my mind. And and after uh, like a failed job market paper in my fifth year, uh, I finally was like you know like I need to know I need to do what I what I really I'm very passionate mm-hmm. about is uh, to give it a, one last shot uh, to this career mm-hmm. choice. And then I'm working sort of on this sort of the issue of kind of like um, uh, of broker monitoring, essentially trying to have like a a view of kind of like how vote buying is actually implemented uh, from more of like a, from a firm perspective. That's where kind of like most the, the econ angle, econ angle, kind of like moral hazard. Um, and mo- if you look at sort of most of, up, up to then, kind of most of the literature in political science was mostly about like uh, this very sort of endogenous type analysis of like of which type of voters are targeted by brokers. And I thought, you know, essentially like it's kind of going one level up and trying to understand how is that, you know, this, this kind of vote buying machines are organized mm-hmm. uh, from a kind of more of a theory of the firm would be like pretty interesting. Uh, anyway, I tried something uh, and, you know, it worked out pretty well. And so that's kind of my job market paper on kind of like this kind of agency problem between candidates um, and brokers. And that from that on, you know, sort of um, I started kind of presenting that, getting myself more into the literature, which I, I didn't know as well. Um, and that one question sort of led, led to the other. And, and that's sort of like how things started in Latin America. And then, you know, I had before that, I had some projects in Africa. And I thought, you know, like um, somehow like everybody kind of challenged all the lessons from 
clientelism in, in Latin America and they were like, you know, like in Africa, you can't do that because you don't have like well-organized parties, you deserve yeah. a young democracy. So I was like, I don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. So kind of like oh, picked up on, on, on that fight and that battle, I guess, and sort of, and actually like, so a lot of my work is really about translating kind of what you learn from Latin America sort of into mm-hmm. Africa. And then also in Africa, it's a lot easier to do this type of ICTs. Mm-hmm. Um, people are more willing and you have like much mm-hmm. more funding. So, but at the same time, lots of things actually I learned in Africa. I went back to the Latin American context and see that actually that they fly pretty well. So I think it's been a, like a, a, been a lot of feedback in terms mm-hmm. of like, you know, like uh, what I've learned in both regions. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I think that, um, I think we're like the return to our time is, is going to highest, certainly probably in Africa. Uh, also Asia, but I think it's too far to travel. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and of course I have like all these kind of cultural advantage and, and mm-hmm. And these roots in Latin America, my, my wife is Mexican, mm-hmm. so I'm also very interested in mm-hmm. like, the well-being of the Mexicans. Yeah. yeah, I think that the Latin American African parallels are clearer um, than the story in Asia. I mean, so I actually spent like several summers doing RCTs, mm-hmm. uh, uh, some more stuff on like networks and, and, and informal insurance, like mm-hmm. in my previous life as a development economist. So actually, but in a funny way, like I was thinking about running this experience and not so much about the Indian politics. So, right. so and even though, you know, actually it's like very interesting work uh, uh, on, on clientelism now, like uh, this guy Tariq Tashel, um, Avandi Real was like amazing uh, job, work on that. But, uh, you know, it's a space it's too late for me to, to <laughs> it's very far for, for the commute. I have two kids, so it's like, uh, uh, I'll stick to what I know. <laughs> and you've been truly prolific um, during your career. How do you manage to be so efficient? Um, and how does your daily routine look like? Uh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I, so I think, you know, a lot of the... I think I'm a good manager. I think I think it's it's really a, I think a, I, um, I think the first thing is you need to be passionate about it. So that gives you a lot of energy. Uh, I'm also pretty hyperactive, so I have, the energy <laughs> is always a big plus, and has always been a big plus. Uh, with being Latin American. <laughs> and uh, even as well, yeah, 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 of course, you know, like having you know, like the uh, also, I guess you know, yeah, so some sort of comparative advantage for like kind of field work that also <laughs> helps, and uh, and also like, you have a lot of connections. But I think the, mo- the, the most, I think, the important thing has been uh, really about like managing and uh, and having like uh, develop like good partnerships. Um, in a weird way, sort of, sort of when I go to Harvard, there were a lot of people working on political economy mm-hmm. and Africa, and like Bob Bates retired, Jim Robinson left to Chicago, um, even though he was the one recruiting me. Uh, and uh, and pretty much I, I would find myself with like a bunch of students. Uh, and I was like, look, I can't be a good supervisor uh, and still get tenure sort of, uh, unless you know, I kind of start this kind of J-Pal business model that you know, essentially you're gonna need to have like a, uh, this kind of pyramidal structure and, and like and, and a lot of people like uh, green minds and uh, which you do have a, a lot around. Uh, sort of working on projects and sort of trying to like kind of manage these type of things and I've actually learned a lot about uh, you know, research actually from my students so it's been I think a, a great like sort of symbiotic relationship and somehow you know I was able to scale that up um, and you know I think going back to the point that you know I think that I'm a, I'm a fairly good kind of manager kind of like pushing mm-hmm. things but also being there you know to make things happen and which has allowed me to sort of like really like sort of tackle a bunch of, of projects uh, with great people and sort of uh, I think that it's been a win for, for, for everybody. I think that has helped a lot with productivity. I think that, you know, if I was not surrounded by such an, such amazing graduate students, 
uh, both Harvard and MIT, because I've worked, uh, worked with great people from MIT, come, uh, that would have not been feasible. Yeah. Yeah, understandable. Scale matters. <laughs> and then finally, what single piece of advice would you give an early career researcher trying to write um, a publishable paper for a top journal? So the first one would be to actually write a bad paper and try to get it published. I think that the I think one of the the biggest mistakes I did was not to pay attention to the round. Darren was one of my supervisors when he told me like to just like submit some crappy papers I wrote, and it would, you know I did not expect to get much out of it. But I think you know like the referee process it's a very telling process. Essentially, like the job market it is one as well, but it's probably too late, uh, and hopefully you wanna. Have a better job, like a better paper. By the time you you go to the market, and I think essentially like trying, like sort of uh, just trying to get out whatever you write as a certain paper. Uh, like just do your best and just get it out and see kind of how the process plays out. I think that essentially like at the end of the day, like you're gonna have to learn about how that works and somehow backward induct, so that you know whenever you start writing a paper, you can anticipate kind of you know. Um, all, all the, 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 the kind of the, the hurdles you have to go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in a funny way, I think it's just uh, just get your first bad paper out, um, and then you you'll see that you know like uh, it will be a lot clearer. You know what is expected, um, all that. Yeah. And how much weight would you put on these initial reactions? Uh, so I mean, over time you put less on, on that, uh, but at the beginning somehow I think that it's good to over worry. I think I think you know like the anticipating a lot of pushback is gonna make you be much more thorough, and so if you can sort of like anticipate a lot of skeptical referees, mm-hmm. uh, you're gonna go sort of the extra mile. And I think nowadays, sort of uh, especially in economics, sort of like uh, you know like we have these massive appendixes, you know, and people expect you to you know check and somehow like. Everything's a reject comment that you know, uh, unless you're a top person, and you know, <laughs> uh, and it's just I think things become easier. But essentially, like you know, everything you know, it's a, it's a, if you're a junior scholar, you know, um, anyway, everybody picks if they want to reject your paper. Essentially, like it's like they just you know can find they can use any any sort of reason, and so you really want to limit uh, those. Thank you very much, Professor. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. And this concludes one more episode of Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it is made. I hope you've enjoyed tuning in, and we'll see you next time.